Section 9 of The City of Din. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The City of Din by Dan Mackenzie. So much now for noise and its evils in ordinary life. In this tempestuous sea of sound, we unfortunates are hopelessly immersed. Science has acquainted us with the atrophy of organs from lack of use, as in the blind fish that inhabit cavern waters. But there is another form of atrophy, and that is atrophy from overuse or abuse. Will the men of the future be born deaf, so that their sensitive brains may be spared the paralyzing impact upon them of the heavy blows of artificial sound? The question is less fanciful than it appears. Heredity and development have effected more radical transformations than this in the structure of animal bodies. We now turn to consider the effect of noise upon those whose occupation exposes them to the influence of loud sounds. In my endeavors hitherto to depict the harm produced by the noises in our streets and houses, it will doubtless have been remarked that the effects produced are general and not local, that their influence operates on the brain rather than on the ear itself on the personality as a whole rather than on the organ of hearing. And it is true that I have not so far been able to detect any signs indicative of damage to the ear itself from the noises of everyday life. All the same, I am decidedly of opinion that while ears that are healthy receive little or no actual or demonstrable damage, to those ears on the other hand which catarrh or other disease has rendered delicate, the loud noises of our streets and railways actually are harmful, and for that reason I hold that such ears should always be protected against loud sounds by plugs or ear coverings, exactly in the same way that people with weak eyes are advised to wear tinted spectacles in a bright light. In the case of workmen and others who are exposed to loud sounds in the course of their employment, however, we find that it is the hearing apparatus which becomes deranged. These men, whether their ears are healthy or not to begin with, sooner or later become deaf. Here, in other words, we have men who have already suffered the fate which in a moment of gloomy foreboding I held out as likely to overtake mankind as a race, unless it's set about reducing the noise in the world. Noise deafness is due to a destruction of the auditory nervous apparatus by the excessive stimulation produced by the fall of loud sounds upon it. All noise, that is to say, all unpleasant sound, is harmful. When it is intermittent, it is only the brain that suffers, and the damage produced is merely temporary. When, on the other hand, the noise is continuous, then it is the organ of hearing itself that is injured, and the effects of the injury persist, just as if, I do not, however, say that this is the real reason, just as if nature adopted this method of protecting the brain of those habitually exposed to loud noise. To the foregoing description of the genesis of noise deafness, there is an exception. A single exposure to a noise, if it be loud enough, may produce deafness, and deafness which proves to be permanent. But the general rule holds good that noise deafness is usually the result of noise of relatively moderate intensity if it is continuous or if the ear is exposed to its influence at regular intervals and for prolonged periods. We sometimes speak of an ear-splitting noise, and this expression is perfectly accurate, 
for the membrane of the ear popularly known as the drum may be ruptured by a sudden noise of great intensity such as an explosion although deafness in gunners must have been known for centuries probably ever since gunpowder was invented the first form of noise deafness to be scientifically examined was that occurring in boilermakers footnote i think i have read somewhere that in the south sea islands exposure to the booming sound of the ocean breakers on the coral reefs renders the natives deaf but although deafness may be unusually common amongst these people that it is due to noise and not to other factors such as the action of the salt water upon the canal of the ear is not to my mind quite clear End footnote. it was dr thomas barr of glasgow who in eighteen eighty six first in this country at all events scientifically investigated noise deafness his patients were boilermakers who in the course of their work are exposed to noise of the most appalling character i quote from his paper on the subject in the process of boiler making four different classes of men are engaged riveters caulkers platers and holders on the riveter drives in with a large hammer the red-hot iron rivets for binding the plates together the caulker hammers with a chisel the edges of the plates so as to ensure complete tightness the plater forms the iron plates and arranges them accurately in position while the holder on stands inside the boiler holding a large hammer the head of which he presses against the inner end of a rivet these are not all equally exposed to loud sounds and they differ therefore in the extent to which their ears are affected the men who work inside the boiler such as the holders on are of course exposed to the loudest and most damaging sounds their ears are near to the rivet which is being hammered in by the riveter outside the iron on which they stand is vibrating intensely under the blows of perhaps twenty hammers wielded by twenty powerful men confined by the walls of the boiler the waves of sound are vastly intensified and strike the tympanum with appalling force while the vibrations from the iron pass directly through the bodies of the men to the delicate structure of the inner ear if in such circumstances we venture into the interior of a boiler our first impulse is to hurry out or to stop our ears with our fingers we are conscious not merely of the sound waves like blows producing their terrible effects upon our ears exciting therein sharp painful intolerable sensations but our bodies seem to be enveloped in invisible and yet tangible waves which we actually feel striking against our heads and our hands when i underwent this experience i fortunately furnished myself with a couple of india rubber plugs and by carefully withdrawing and inserting them in the canals of my ears i was able at pleasure to admit or shut out the fearful sound let no one who values his hearing perform such an experiment without similar precautions after such an experience one is surprised that the delicate mechanism in the interior of the ears can retain its integrity for a single day under the action of these blows of compressed air in order to experience the full effect of the noises in boiler making one must ensconce himself in one of the smaller interior chambers such as a superheater or flue where the air space is still more confined while the plates which are being hammered are thin and therefore give forth notes not only intensely loud but extremely shrill even men whose hearing has been blunted by years of exposure to the sounds of boiler making are i am told 
forced in such circumstances to protect their ears with cotton waste or such like stopping. Amid the overpowering din, communications are generally to be made by pantomime gestures, and when the foreman wishes to attract the attention of the men, he employs a shrill whistle like a policeman's. When my conductor at one moment in the loudest and shrillest voice spoke closely into the passage of my ear, the effect was not that of spoken intelligible words, but that of acute pain as the sharp tones pierced my ear. Since Dr. Barr's paper was published, a considerable amount of work has been done on the subject, with the results that we now know that not boilermakers alone, but many other workmen who also labor amid noise suffer from noise deafness. The list of occupations which tend to damage the hearing is a formidable one, including, as it does, workers in metals generally, such as blacksmiths, shipbuilders, locksmiths, coppersmiths, tinsmiths, iron turners, file makers, plate makers, and tinkers, together with railway workers, especially engine drivers and stokers, beetlers, weavers, and other workers among noisy machinery, and lastly, riflemen, artillerymen, and naval gunners. Footnote. According to several authorities, telephone employees run no risk of noise deafness. End footnote. In short, appropriately enough, our noisy civilization is based upon a din which is literally deafening. An interesting fact concerning noise deafness has recently been brought to light by Dr. T. Ritchie Roger working under the guidance of Dr. Logan Turner of Edinburgh. This is that in the early stages of noise deafness, the particular part of the organ of hearing which is deafened is that which corresponds to the pitch of the predominant note in the deafness-producing noise. A glance over the deafening occupations we have just enumerated will show that in some of them the noise is made up chiefly of high-pitched or squeaking sounds, as in the boiler-making described by Dr. Barr, while in others, such as beetling, the noise is a complex of low-pitched sounds. Beetling is a stage in the process of finishing cotton cloth. It consists in subjecting the material, which is wound round horizontal wooden cylinders, to the repeated impact of long, heavy wooden logs, or beetles. The noise thus generated is a sort of thundering purr, which, as Dr. Barr remarked concerning the noise of boiler-making, can be felt vibrating in the body, and especially in the chest as well as in the ears. Roger Ritchie's suggestion, then, is that the boiler-maker loses his hearing for high-pitched, and the beetler his hearing for low-pitched sounds, before the rest of the hearing suffers, as it does in the later stages. Perhaps I ought to interpolate a word here to explain the significance of this curious occurrence. That portion of the internal ear which is specialized for the reception of sound waves is known as the organ of corti. Of its minute anatomy there is no need to speak. What interests us specially is that it may be likened to the keyboard of the piano, and that, as Helmholtz supposed, the sound waves play upon this physiological piano, exciting thereby a nervous impulse interpreted by the brain as a sound, varying in pitch with the rate of the sound waves and with the part of the piano which is touched by them. If, then, this invisible piano player hammers violently and incessantly upon one note or one group of notes, he breaks them, and thereafter they remain forever silent, the person becoming deaf to that particular tone or group of tones. 
In the later stages, the deafness extends to affect the rest of the hearing, as we have already said. It will have been noticed that the above list includes gunners and riflemen who are exposed to the sound of explosions. An explosion generates a sound wave of enormous amplitude with a steep ascent and a gradual slope. The size of explosion sound wave varies, as does their form, from the short sharp crack of the service rifle up to the mountainous billow of sound that emanates from the great naval guns and monster howitzers. Naturally, a single discharge of the former is less dangerous to the hearing than a single discharge of the latter. But in the case of machine guns, although each individual shot may cause but a trifling report, nevertheless by the repetition of the explosions the sound makes up in duration what it lacks in intensity, with the consequence, as machine gunners have often told me, that the rattle of quick firers is always more deafening than the individually louder but less frequently repeated discharge of heavy ordnance. A rapid repetition of the latter, however, as the naval battles of the Great War have proved, is probably one of the most terribly destructive to hearing of all the sounds of civilization. When heavy guns are fired, two elements in the consequent aerial disturbance have to be considered, the blast, namely, and the boom of the explosion. The blast, which is felt by everyone standing within a conical area towards the front, or a little to one side of the muzzle of the gun, is a massive displacement or propulsion forwards and outwards of a conically shaped area of the atmosphere, the apex of which is the mouth of the gun. The boom of the explosion, on the other hand, is a sound wave of tremendous size, no doubt, but still nothing more than a wave, an oscillation, that is to say, of the individual molecules of the air, an intense condensation followed by a rarefaction, the air as a mass not moving at all. The blast, having all the violence of an overwhelming blow, is capable of stunning and even of killing anyone who might be rash enough to wander within the range of its action, so that if the ears were affected, they would be so only as part and parcel of a diffuse and almighty smack. But by standing well behind the muzzle of the gun, one is safe from its effects, as in that situation one is outside the cone of displacement. In the case of the boom, however, there is no position in the vicinity of the gun where one can avoid it, as it spreads equally all around through a spherically shaped area of the atmosphere, the center of which is the mouth of the gun. Thus, the noise is as great behind the gun as it is to one side of it. So tremendous in these great explosions is the condensation and rarefaction of the air that the drum of the ear may be rent by it in precisely the same way in which the closed windows of a house are shattered by heavy firing. You can preserve your windows intact by leaving them open when guns are being fired, because in that position, the pressure being equal at the same moments on both sides of the glass, the panes are not submitted to any strain and remain unbroken. In like manner, gunners, when firing, open their mouths in a semi-yawn as this opens the eustachian tubes which lead from the throat to the middle ear, and so equalizes the pressure on either side of the drum membrane, thus preventing its rupture. But it is to be remembered that this maneuver, although it protects the drum membrane, does not prevent the transmission of the sound from the air to the delicate organ of corti. 
In ordinary peace practice, gun firing is neither so intense nor so prolonged as it is in war, and yet it is capable of inducing a considerable amount of deafness among those who are exposed to the noise for lengthened periods. As a rule, naval gunners and gunnery officers suffer much more from the effect of gun firing upon the ears than do artillery officers and men on land. There are two reasons for this difference. The first is that the sound shock from guns fired in the turrets of ships is much more concentrated than it is from guns which are fired in the open. And the second is that in a ship, the sonorous vibrations are transmitted without loss by its steel structure to the bones of the body, whereas on land they are absorbed and dissipated in the earth. In order to comprehend the significance of the latter reason, it is necessary to understand that the sound may reach the ear not only from the air through the canal of the ear, but also through the bones of the body and skull, in the same way as sound may be conveyed along a plank of wood, for example, or through water. For all ordinary purposes, conduction through the bones is negligible, but in the case of the loud sonorous noise of gun explosions, the sound waves travel to the ear both through the canal and through the bones of the body and skull. That being so, in order to protect the hearing against the destructive effects of heavy gun firing, a flooring of some non-conducting material, such as rubber matting, should form part of the equipment of the turrets of a battleship. For the same reason, naval gunners should be instructed to stand during the firing with knees half-bent and back curved, or, if they are lying prone, to raise the head from the deck so as to impede as much as possible the transmission of the sound through the bones of the body. In the French Navy, the skull itself is protected against the impact of the sound by a helmet, which both covers the head and closes in the canals of the ears, a most excellent device. In thus guarding against the transmission of sound vibrations through the bones of the body and skull, we are, of course, closing only one of the avenues of approach to the nervous organization of the internal ear. There remains to be considered the more important avenue, that, namely, through the external canal of the ear, which, as I have just remarked, is the usual route by which sound reaches us. This route may be more or less blocked by earplugs. I have already spoken of the use of earplugs in railway traveling, and I now proceed to discuss their employment as preservatives of hearing in the midst of loud noises of all kinds. We adopt earplugging instinctively when we put our fingers into the ears to protect them from an unpleasant noise. Unfortunately, fingers are not always available for this purpose, and nature, not having foreseen the astonishing increase of din in the modern world, has failed to furnish us with earlids to protect the hearing as eyelids protect the sight. Consequently, we must invoke the aid of art to repair nature's lack of forethought. The plugs which may be used for this purpose are many and various. The most popular is that made of cotton wool. Unfortunately, the stopping power of dry cotton wool is very slight, certainly less than that of the fingers, and there are many other materials which are much more effective. Hard rubber is sometimes used and cotton wool mixed with Vaseline has its adherence. But by far the most efficient plug, in my opinion, is that introduced by Sir William Dalby many years ago. This is a plastic material like cobbler's wax, with which is incorporated as a binding material a modicum of cotton wool. Unfortunately, as supplied by the dealers, this antiphony 
is somewhat costly, too costly at all events for workmen and gunners. For this reason I suggested some years ago to the authorities at the Admiralty and the Home Office earplugs composed of plasticine and cotton wool, fibrous plasticine, as it is called, and although the material is not perhaps so elegant as the other, it answers this purpose very well, and has been widely adopted, I believe, both in the Navy and in noisy workshops and factories. There is one little practical point to be observed in using plastic earplugs, and that is that shortly after the plug has been packed into the metis, or canal of the ear, the air enclosed in the canal, becoming warm, undergoes expansion and causes an uncomfortable sensation of pressure in the ears. When this is felt, it can at once be relieved by easing or removing the plug for a moment so as to permit the escape of the excess heated air from the metis. There is another variety of earplug which has been favorably received. This is known as the Malik Armstrong Ear Defender, the essential constituent of which seems to be a fine membrane like gold beater's skin. Personally, I prefer the plastic plug, but that may only be a matter of prejudice or habit. One great advantage of all such earplugs is that although they exclude loud and harsh noises, or at least reduce them to the point of tolerance, they offer so little obstruction to the tones of the human voice that ordinary conversation is quite audible, so that men can use them and still hear the word of command. In concluding this section, however, I should once more like to direct attention to the French naval helmet, which ought certainly to be adopted by the British Navy. End of section 9